Galatians 4, uh, verses 1 to 20 tonight. Uh, I've broken the, uh, the verses we're looking at tonight into four um, sections, we'll say. And uh, so section one is basically verses one to seven. It's uh, Paul's analogy comparing sons to slaves. Second section is uh, Paul's refuting the Galatians' belief they still had to earn their way to God's grace, verse 8 to 11. Third section is Paul's appeal to the Galatians, reminding them of the first time they heard the gospel. And finally, the fourth section is Paul's warning to the Galatians of the legalists, verses 17 to 20. Uh, we are going to spe spend um, a good chunk of our, our time tonight uh, uh, just on section 1, verses 1 to 7. It's a lot of verses to cover tonight, uh, so I thought uh, section 1 is, uh, is an important one. Not, not that the other sections are not, but uh, we're going to spend a, a good amount of time on that, and then we'll spend the rest of the time allocated to, uh, to the remaining uh, sections. All right, so we'll go ahead and read um, section one, which is uh, comparing a child to a slave. I hope I can read this. Okay, uh, that's okay. I, I can read it here. Yeah. So uh, verses one to seven, it, it's in the New King James uh, that, that I'm uh, reading from. It says, now I say that the heir, as long as he's a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So, let's just starting section one. So the first two verses basically say, now I say that the heir, as long as he's a, he's a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. So here Paul is using an analogy of a master-to-slave relationship that would have been familiar to his readers to explain what he means. In other words, comparing a child, an heir to a slave, to explain the message of being under God's grace versus the law. Paul uses analogy to make it relatable to the people he was speaking to. So imagine the contrast of saying, even though you are a child, someday to be master of all, you're really no different than the slave until you're freed from the guardian. To say the child who is ultimately at the top of the ladder of the household, 
was the same as a slave who's at the bottom of the ladder of the household was meant to get his reader's attention. For this comparison to make sense, though, we need to go back to the previous chapter in Galatians 3 that his readers would have just read. We're just going to look at a couple of verses that Paul wrote in the previous chapter, Galatians 23 to 25. Paul says, but before faith came, we were kept in the guard by the law, kept for the faith which would, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer a tutor. So before Christ came, or before faith came, we were under the law. The law was our tutor in the same way as a tutor who taught the child and acted as the child's guardian. Watching over the child, guiding the child, and keeping tabs on the child's behavior. With respect to the rules that were set before the child. And if it was necessary to apply discipline to the child, as was deemed appropriate by the father, of course. So just like the tutor to the child, the law kept us in the guard. It showed us right and wrong. It watched over us, it guided us, it was our tutor. And when we did wrong, our sins counted against us. And like the child, God would discipline, discipline his people when it was necessary. We were slaves to sin because of the law. Because we could never fulfill the law completely. Therefore, be free from sin. Just like the child is not free, just like the slave is not free. We talk a lot about the law, so what is the law? Well, one perspective is there are over 600 commandments in the Old Testament law given by God for Moses. There's no specific verse in the Bible that says there are 600 or so. Some scholars have gone ahead and counted them and there's also no consensus as to how the commands were counted. But all this is only a technicality because as we just covered in the last few verses in chapter three, the purpose of the law, the tutor, was to point us to Christ, not to try fulfilling the law on our own works. Because reality is no one can perfectly obey the law or all the commandments independent of the count because we all fall short of the glory of God. Only the perfect man could fulfill the law. God himself in the person of his son. But Paul also makes it very clear that even though we're free from the law, it doesn't mean we can do as we please. The Lord himself said he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish the law. So we still ought to obey God's commandment, commandments, which leads to righteousness. In Romans 6, whoop, sorry about that. I should turn that off. My bad. Uh, in uh, Romans uh, 6, uh, 
verses 15 to 16, Paul writes, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? So we've gone from slaves of sin to slaves of God in the context that God is now our master. A master and slave relationship, not based on oppression, but based on love. And so we obey because we love God, because we want to. And so we want to live righteously. And this is what Paul wrote to Timothy in that respect. In 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, Paul says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So going back to the, the verse, uh, the heir, as long as his child, is under the guardian uh, until the time appointed by the father. There was no specific age per se, uh, but only when the father decided that the child was ready and he was an adult. So the child does not differ at all from a slave in the sense that even though he's master of all, he actually is not free and is under the authority of the guardian. Just like the slave is under the authority of the master, neither is free. So the analogy is if you want to live by the law, be a slave to the law, will never be free uh, spiritually, of course. So spiritually speaking, of course. The law will always be our guardian, as we just mentioned uh, earlier in, in chapter 3, Galatians uh, 3, uh, 3, 24 to 25. So to use the analogy again, at, uh, at the appointed time, God the Father sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to free us from sin. If we choose to become children of God through faith in Christ, we're no longer under the law. So now moving on to verse 3, uh, Paul says, even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. So now Paul is comparing those who are under the law just like the children we spoke about. He doesn't mean children literally, as minors, but rather those who are under the law and in bondage to the elements of the world. Children, again, figuratively speaking. Uh, so the elements of the world, uh, what does that mean? So what it means, uh, uh, based on most commentaries, is that it's basically how the world operates. It's to be slaves to the world and, and it's world, worldly, worldly things. Basically, you, it's the idea that you have to earn your way. It is the pr principle of cause and effect, or you get what you deserve. 
it happens in the context of well, if we do good, we'll get good things in return. And when we do bad, well, we can expect bad things, bad things in return. It is how we're wired from a young age. Uh, parents reward when the kids are good and not so much when the kids are bad. While there's truth to that, and in principle, the way it's meant to be in its application in life, I mean, we do have to work, earn or work to get any sort of results. It's been that way. It's been that way since the beginning, the beginning of the fall, which is all we've known. Adam was going to have to work after the fall, and so all his descendants got the same fate. Uh, just to show where that's coming from, I don't have it up on the PowerPoint, but it's in Genesis 3.17. God said to Adam, verse 17 in chapter 3, Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. However, the elements of a world doesn't have a place when it comes to our faith in Christ and God's grace. We cannot earn our faith or God's grace because ultimately we're getting something we don't deserve in the first place. The principle of cause and effect does not apply, no longer applies because there's no way to earn or cause something we cannot have. It can only be given to us. There's not enough good we can do to receive it or bad that will prevent us, prevent us from receiving it. It has nothing to do with us, but only God. It is God's gift. As Paul puts, in his, puts it in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And that was the big problem in Galatia that Paul was trying to address with the Judaizers. It was basically a Jewish, Jewish sect uh, who were Christian converts. They were telling new believers, primarily Gentiles, that to be Christian converts, they had to submit to Jewish, Jewish laws and traditions in addition to the faith in Christ. They still believed in the cause and effect of the old law. That is, they still had to, in addition, fulfill the law. If that's the case, then Paul says, then we're still in bondage under the elements of the world. We're still trying to earn things like the world does. So moving on to verse 4 and 5, uh, Paul writes, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So verse 4 follows what was, what was previously stated in verse 3, which is, at one time we were in bondage under the elements of the world. We had to earn things. But now there's a new plan in place. But when the fullness of time had come, 
So this is the idea was that when the time was perfect, God, God sent his son. Of course, God's timing is always perfect. He doesn't have to question his timing like we do because he sees the past, present, and future. Unlike us, he doesn't use the expression, oh, in hindsight, or at the right place at the right time. Because these statements that we make come from not knowing the future. Only when the future has revealed itself that we can look back and reflect and use it and use make these expressions. In hindsight, I wish I had made or not made this decision. I was at the right place at the right time only because the future outcome has turned out to be favorable. Ultimately, only God knows why his timing is perfect. We don't really know. We can think why and maybe suggest a few possibilities. I will suggest we can look at two prophecies, why his timing was as such. And that would be one of his son's birth and one of his death. So first, in his, his, uh, his birth, which is in Micah, uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 2. And it says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings are forth, are from of old, from everlasting. God had already determined his, uh, the birth of his son was going to take place in Bethlehem. Yet the woman he had chosen, I would suggest probably before she even came to be, to bear this child, was going to come from Nazareth. So how does this prophecy come true? Because God already foreknew Joseph, Mary's husband, was to come from the ancestral lines of David that would place Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem, the city of David's, the city of David for his son's birth. Because God also already knew Caesar Augustus was going to decree a census that would send Joseph back to his hometown. So the birth had to be timed with that census. And so that was timed with his birth. So second is death. Isaiah 53.5 says, But it was pierced through four our transgressions. When Isaiah wrote this, that was 700 years into the future, from his time before the Messiah came. He could have only given us a glimpse of how the Savior was going to die. Because God had already determined how his son was going to die. He'd be pierced through. In other words, be nailed, which came to be onto the cross, which is the crucifixion. So his death had to be time when the crucifixion became the means of execution. So again, his death had to be time around that time accordingly. Suggestions, suggestions why we think, uh, why, why we, we, uh, we believe uh, the Lord came when he came. So moving on to uh, the next part of the, uh, the next part of verse four, uh, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. 
Uh, actually, I won't. Um, yeah, so uh, God sent forth his son born of a woman. It's an interesting observation by Paul. I mean, how would Jesus be born if not of a woman? It's kind of obvious. I read this verse many times, but this time it, it did beg the question, well, why does Paul state the obvious? Well, in a way, maybe it is to point out the virgin birth. The Lord was conceived by the Holy Spirit and the, only the Holy Spirit. He did not come from men or, and woman, and so Jesus was born sinless. And so Paul continues on to say, born under the law, the Old Testament law, to emphasize again the purpose of his coming, that the law was binding until his son came. We had to fulfill the law, which we, we know was not humanly possible. So his son came to redeem those who were under the law, to pay for our sins because God could never make that payment. And not only be redeemed, but also to adopt us into God's family, to make us his own. To put this in context, Welcome to All Tech Lansing. As great as John the Baptist was, this is what the Lord said about him in Matthew chapter 11, 9. I think I got the, the wrong chapter there. Sorry about that. So this is what uh, John is writing. Uh, sorry, Matthew. Um, verse 9. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is... He of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, uh, your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, meaning John the Baptist. When we come into God's family, the kingdom of heaven, we have received something so special that even John the Baptist did not receive. Because of course we know John the Baptist was executed before the, law, uh, before the Lord went to the cross, when the payment for sin was made. We have received God's grace through Christ that no one prior to his death on the cross would have received, not even the prophets. And moving on to verse 6 and 7. And because your sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So Paul says, because we have been adopted as sons, we have a spirit in us the spirit that the Lord had promised us to enable us to call God Father or Abba and much more to live and walk by the spirit that Paul will address later in the letter. To call God Father is significant because it's in the same manner that Jesus, God's son, called out to God his Father. 
we relate to God the Father just like he did. Calling him Abba is personal. And because we've been adopted back in those days and just like today, legally makes us family into which we were adopted in. Again, using the analogy of slave and son, the slave could never be freed from his position unless someone bought out his freedom. But Paul adds, not only was the slave bought out, but the slave was also adopted into the family. He has now become a son, an heir to the family. So now Paul moves on to the next section of this chapter. I'm explaining uh, to being sons and heirs by grace and only grace to refuting the Galatians' belief they still had to earn their way to God's grace. So verse 8, but then indeed when you did not know God you served those which by nature are not God's. But now after you have known God or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Paul first explains how, indeed, going back to the verse, uh, verse 8 again, Paul first explains how indeed when the Galatians did not know God, it was understandable how they were trying to earn their way to a God which wasn't really God. It goes back to the idea that we have to earn something. But now Paul says, you know God and he also knows you. It's important to note the believer's relationship to God. It's a two-way relationship. God knows his children as well. The Pharisees claimed to have known God, but God didn't really know them in the sense that they were not true to their faith. The Pharisees were more about them than God. So next, Paul questions the Galatians. How is it that you're going back to the elements of the world again? which were weak and beggarly. Weak because it's based on works again. Works will never get you saved because it's open-ended. There's no checklist. To put it another way, there's not enough begging one can do to get saved. It's futile. Paul says you're trying to earn God's favor on your own effort in bondage to earning that favor with God. And here he gives an example. You observe days and months and seasons and years. Paul actually doesn't have an issue with believers observing days and seasons. In fact, he writes in Romans 14, 5 to 6. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. 
He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. This is not a contradiction, because this observance of days has nothing to do with earning God's grace. So finally, Paul, exasperated, says, he's afraid that all the work he's put in, here it's translated, as in he gave it his all, means has amounted to, to nothing if the Galatians return to their way of trying to please God on their own efforts by living in bondage again. That God's grace for Christ was not enough. So moving on to the next section. So now Paul is appealing to the Galatians and reminding them of the first time they heard the gospel. Verses 12 to 16. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. Sorry. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear witness that if possible, you, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? So starting back on verse 12 again, uh, Paul urges the Galatians to become like him because he became like them. Basically, to a Gentile, he became a Gentile. Which means Paul, as devout as a Jew as he was, as legalist as he was, as he was, trying to make himself righteous in the law before God, even he gave it all up for Christ's sake. This is what he, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, partway, starting partway through verse 4, he says, if anyone else thinks he's confident in the flesh, I have more reason. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as lost because of Christ. And then, moving on to uh, the, the verse 13, Paul says, You know because, that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. So Paul then recounts how the Galatians were so good to him when he first preached them the, the gospel. His physical infirmity had opened a door in that region for him to preach the gospel. And even though he was a burden to them because of his illness, they did not reject them. And so he rhetorically asked, what blessing was it that they enjoyed, if not having heard the gospel? 
So that was the blessing of hearing the gospel. Continuing on to verse 15, this is where Paul says, For I bear you witness that if possible you have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? It was such a blessing hearing the gospel that the Galatians would have plucked out their own eyes and given them to Paul. I would suggest figuratively speaking. Because this is not how you go about giving someone sight anyway. It's interesting to see how Paul uses the example, example of plucking one's eyes because we do recall that Paul did have some eyesight issues. So Paul was likely using a real life example suggesting giving up one's eyes was not completely out of the blue. And the point is this. It was the extent to which the Galatians were willing to go for having heard Paul's message. So Paul concludes rhetorically again, how can I be your enemy for telling you the same truth again? Paul is not the enemy. So finally, now we're on the last section of the uh, tonight's study which is the, a warning to the Galatians of the legalists. In verse 17 to 18, Paul says, they zealously court you, this is the legalists, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I'm present with you. Paul now goes back to the Judaizers or legalists and cautioned the Galatians to be aware of their zeal with false affection and love because it is for no good. And once these legalists have control over you, they will exclude you from everything else so you would only be zealous for them. You're no longer free but under their bondage. And Paul then reminds the Galatians, it's good to be zealous, but only for the truth, and not only practice the truth when he is present, so not to be fooled by the false teachers. And then to the last couple of verses for tonight, Paul says, my little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is forming you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone. For I have my doubts about you. So, to conclude this section of the letter, Paul expresses how he feels like he's in labor again, bringing the Galatians back to their spiritual birth again, until Christ is complete in them, until they understand it's only about Christ. And Paul is almost admitting he didn't succeed the first time because he has doubt, doubts about that first time he preached the gospel. So he wished he could be in person again to address the problem.